Welcome back to Experts Only. I'm your host, John Powers. I'm the co-founder of Clean Capital and serve as President Obama's Chief Sustainability Officer. On this podcast, we explore solutions to climate change by talking to industry leaders about the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance. You can get more episodes at cleancapital.com. Welcome back to Experts Only Podcast. I'm your host, John Powers. We've been on hiatus for about half a year, and we're really getting the podcast up and going again here in 2023. And we have a phenomenal first episode this year for you with Governor Bill Ritter, the 41st governor of Colorado from 2007 to 2011, and is now founded and leads the New Energy Economy Center at Colorado State University. It's a really interesting conversation about the way that policy and markets emerge and the work that they're doing to help create the environment for our industry to continue to thrive. We'll continue to put out new episodes this year, and we're excited to be back online having these conversations. I hope you enjoy them. You can always get more episodes at cleancapital.com. Governor, thanks so much for joining us here at Experts Only. Thank you, John. It's really a pleasure to be with you. You've done some really monumental stuff for Colorado and the country on clean energy, and I want to get into that. But before diving too deep in that, I read that you grew up in a farm with 11 brothers and sisters. That's all right. Yes. Uh, East of Aurora. Wow. What kind of farm? farm. Well, we had a very small plot, five acres. My grandma had the five acres next to us. And then we farmed. We started with a section of ground, which is 640 acres that was wheat. We leased that land. So we never owned it. And it's not a get rich quick scheme to lease a dry land farm yeah. in Eastern Colorado. So we did that. By the way, farming is not a get rich scheme. No, it's not. <laughs> I have a entire family or dairy farmers. So I we uh, expanded it from, you know, a section to a section and a half and had at, at various times uh, farmed different land out there, but it was all kind of where now it's gun club in Mississippi. So East of Buckley, um, which at the time was an air base, but yeah, that's a, you know, we had our own labor pool, eight boys, yeah. girls. So we Amazing. were able to you know, keep busy on this farm. We had cows that we milked by hand and uh, we always had horses of one kind or another. And then we had uh, pigs and chickens and rabbits and goats. No, I don't think we ever had goats, but we had just about everything else. And you fall right smack in the middle of your six, kid six? Yes. Yeah, I'm the sixth out of 12. Yeah. So my dad, my dad's sister has got nine kids on a farm here in upstate New York. And uh, I, I sort of fall in the middle of the group, but being a middle child, how did that help you go on to become a governor? Well, I think you become the negotiator in a lot of ways. Yeah. And our family is, is pretty interesting. If you ever meet somebody from a really big family, there are usually dividing lines between what they call the big kids and the little kids. And so I was the youngest of the big kids and my brother that's just younger than me, 18 months younger than me, he was the oldest of the little kids. And still today, we'll, and we'll refer sometimes to the little kids and the big kids when we're talking about family gatherings. So I was kind of a bridge between, uh, in, in a lot of respects, two different parts of the family, but also I think just had um, the personality of a mediator and the personality uh, to go between the different factions in our family. And that's how it happened. That's amazing. Yeah, I want to come back to that bridge concept more because I feel like that <laughs> iterates throughout your career. Yes. Um, and before we get into you know what led you into the the political side, I mean, you I read you went to work at fourteen on the construct in the construction space. Were you doing that while going to school and then went on to college? Yeah. Well, first, when you're on a farm, you're working all the time. I mean, For I sure. Got a pair of coveralls 
when I was in third grade. And one of the things that my brothers and I did was just take apart electric motors and garbage disposals or whatever for the copper wire and other kinds of minerals that were inside of it and sold it. Um, so we were always working, but I went yeah, to work for a company when I was 14. And it was just the summers when I was in college, I was at CSU uh, in college and we were on the quarter system. So I'd get out at Thanksgiving and I could work between Thanksgiving and the beginning of the school year, January, it was like six weeks. So it was like a half of a summer in addition right. to having worked the summer. And it really, I, I put myself through college, but because of work that I was able to do, I owed no debt when I got out of college. I had some grants, um, some scholarships, but I also uh, worked construction from 14 until my second year of law school. Amazing. And then what led you into law school? Like what was, your, what, what pinged your interest for law school? That's a good question. It's like my father always used to say something about, um, you know, cause everybody, everybody else in my family is in construction. I have a brother that's a civil engineer. I have, you know, a brother-in-law and sister that own a big roofing company and then they employ a bunch of my siblings. And so I don't know. I always wanted to be a lawyer. I, a very good friend of mine, he says, when we first met, we were freshmen in college. He's like, I never met anyone who was so certain about what they wanted to be. Right. <laughs> and I and I think, you know, in high school, I was a debater. I played sports, but I also really enjoyed debating. And I, for some reason, I just had um, a talent there that I wanted to utilize as uh, a lawyer. And I didn't really know a lot of lawyers. My aunt was a legal secretary, but uh, I just I just decided very early on that's what I wanted to do as opposed to, and I worked really hard on construction. It was nice. Uh, to think about a life where I didn't necessarily have to work, you know, as hard yeah. as I had during the summertime and the winter times doing construction. I was a pipe layer. I spent my summers tearing up old railroad tracks around yeah. the country. Oh, and it was yeah. uh, every time I went back to school, I'm like, thank God I'm back here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so I, I don't want to dive in your political career too much for folks that aren't aware. You end up going to the district attorney's office and then that got you sort of into politics. And later on, you really did an amazing job as the governor of, of Colorado. Where on that track um, did you first begin interested in, was it climate? Was it the environment? Was it energy? Like, what was the trigger for you that was sort of the, the you saw the opportunity that we talk about now in the new energy economy? Yeah, the evolution's pretty clear to me. So I became the district attorney after I'd been in the office, actually went and lived in Africa as a Catholic missionary for three years with my wife, wow. and with one of our sons. We had another son born there. When I came back, um, I was back as a federal prosecutor for a couple of years, then in the DA's office in Denver, and my predecessor left. So the governor appoints, and the governor appointed me. I applied, he appointed me, loved the fact that I'd lived in Africa. I would not say at that juncture that I was, I, I was, I cared a lot about the environment. I think in Colorado, you have many people with a real relationship with the land, with the water, with the air. But it wasn't, you know, any kind of a focus for me while I was uh, the district attorney. I was DA for almost 12 years. Um, when I came out, I'd been at the state capitol a lot while I was the DA. I testified for prosecutors up there, and I just kind of thought this is this state is a different state. It it has a promise to it that we're not fully appreciating as um, for people in government. Yeah, people that were kind of in charge. So I started thinking about what would make this state a different place. And it was really in that two-year period between leaving the DA's office 
and running for governor that I began to really go to school on a variety of things. Uh, importantly, environment and energy. And I, I would say probably um, environment, climate change, and energy were all of equal importance. So were, so were education, so sure. was um, housing, so was healthcare. This is before you know Obamacare. We had a real healthcare crisis around the country. And so we called it the Colorado Promise. What's the promise of Colorado? And I used to talk about building an economy around um, new forms of energy. I ran uh, my first campaign commercial was at a wind farm. And I really began thinking this is about uh, different energy because we were a fossil fuel state. Yeah. It's about an economy. It's about the environment. It's about equity. And we very early on said, we're not going to build an energy economy on the back of poor people. So we're going to have to think about how we do this so all people have access to clean energy. And, and there was a woman who was uh, married to, at the time, my communications director. And she said, you know, what you're talking about is what I would call a new energy economy. So my right. center that I run at CSU is called the Center for the New Energy Economy. That was coined, uh, that, that term was coined while I was a candidate. And wow. what was really interesting about that is I was running against a a real reputable congressman, a you know, a good guy and a good candidate. Uh, he had won close elections before, and everybody thought that he was going to be very, very formidable. And it turns out when we started running our um, our campaign ad in a wind farm talking about Colorado being the center of this new energy economy, it really we we took off and never looked back. Um, wow. We never uh, trailed in that race, and I think. The people of the state were, you know, we had passed the renewable portfolio standard at the ballot in 2004 in Colorado. It was uh, clear that the utility which had opposed it was going to have to build, you know, renewables pretty seriously. And then they yeah. they began to understand even the promise of clean energy and, and had a leadership change. So they got on board and they began to support the kinds of things that I was talking about, which was doubling the renewable portfolio standard and doing a variety of other things that would really give people access to clean energy. Um, that was yeah. 2006 as a candidate. 2007 is when we went to work. And by the time I left office, we had tripled the renewable portfolio standard. Uh, we gave it a 2020 ending. Um, that was the goal 2020. It was a 30% um, renewable portfolio standard. And John, you know, in 2020 rolled around, we were, we had uh, gone beyond the 30%. So something that all Incredible. the naysayers said could never happen. And as you know, <clears throat> all the prices were declining at the same time that we yeah. were building it out, building out this economy of scale. We attracted groups like Vestas Wind Systems, the biggest wind manufacturer in the world. And so we really did have like an economy and an energy economy and a new energy economy. And, um, you know, I'm very proud that uh, a group of us thought about this first as a candidate, but then while I was governor and the naysayers uh, wind up being wrong about this. Yeah, it was, I'm glad you put the time frame on it because I think folks think about all these great announcements we're hearing almost regularly now to state by states coming out. This is at the beginning of really the transformational decade we had last decade, but you guys were laying the groundwork and putting in place the uh, key policies, right, the net metering or, or other things that were really critical in seeing Colorado move forward. You know, we started, we actually started as a private yield co. 
So uh-huh. only buying up operating assets in Colorado is a great market for us at the time because you guys were so early. So we were right. buying up assets that were coming out of their ITC hold and you we, know school districts and others in Colorado were, were key. We had a, inside the renewable portfolio standard, we had a set aside for solar just to make sure because big wind, you know, um, hydro didn't count uh, in right. our renewable portfolio standard because there are a lot of people said you let a utility build hydro, that's all they'll build. And that's a very hard thing to do in the West because mountains um, are pristine places and we'd had battles over them and it take years and years and really even decades. And so instead of that, we said, okay, it's just going to be clean energy that's carbon free. We're going to put these things in. And by the way, we want to make sure that solar has a, a place in this because the time, as you know, it's pretty expensive, much more expensive than yeah. this. Wow. And, you know, the, the, the downward the decline in cost did not happen yet. And so we said, let's, let's make sure that there is enough there to set the groundwork for solar to grow as an industry in Colorado. And again, I had great advice from people that were helping me think about that. Then I put, you know, people on our utility commission who were, I, I, it'd be fair to say they understood what we were trying to do. And yeah. utility commissioners, they sort of acted accordingly. I also had probably the best utility CEO in America for for what we were trying to do with the clean energy economy. That's, that's fascinating. Um, so you, you come out of that experience and decide to sort of launch the center at CSU. Talk a little bit about sort of what your what what the center does and your thought process and to go into that effort. Because I ask that because we talk a lot about the show about 2030, right? And if the last decade was about really setting the groundwork for the clean energy transition, we are now really transitioning and accelerating that transition. But it's a work at places like the center to help translate things like the in you know the Inflation Reduction Act. So that policymakers, business owners, and others can figure out how to utilize it. It's just so critical. Yeah. So um, thanks for that question. I, at the invitation of the president of CSU, he's now the chancellor of the whole system, Tony Frank, I came to Colorado State University and just parenthetically here, John, I had cut higher ed's budget during the Great Recession. We backfilled it all with ARA money. So we yeah. held it harmless in terms of you know the net money. But it was uh, a bad optic for me to go to a public university. <laughs> so my commitment was to fund it all through foundations. But the vision was because it was 2011, and I just watched how stalled Congress was on a variety of different kinds of clean energy pieces of legislation. Waxman Markey passed the House, never got taken up in the Senate. Right. And you know we would do things through the tax code, and that was about it. And so the action was really where uh, states. Uh, really is where the action was. And, you know, I also felt like there was less partisanship at the state level. Now, that's not always the case. It's not always sort of candy and flowers, but uh, we have managed to work with Republican governors, Republican legislators on state policy. We did one big program or project for uh, the Obama presidency that led up to a variety of things that agencies did that many people called the Obama overreach, but largely my intent, and it turns out to be what we've done because it's 12 years, February 1st, that I've been at the center. Um, we wow. have worked with states, with governors and with state legislators, with utility commissioners. We've worked with um, you know people in the power sector, people in the built environment, and we're a policy center because I believe that policy provides a lever. 
for transforming uh, an economy. So right. you can look at that as in any variety of economies, but transforming an energy economy at the same time you're trying to address climate change, it's really necessary to have supportive policies in place. And um, that was always our belief. And we started sort of almost anecdotally uh, picking off a state here and a state there, just one other guy and I. And then we've grown the shop and now we have a legislator academy. Uh, it's called the Clean Energy Legislator Academy. We uh, usually have, we always have Republicans and Democrats. Right now, all the people who have signed up for our legislator academy are Republicans. That's so amazing. We're, we're doing everything we can to ensure that we have this bipartisan conversation about the clean energy transition. We work with the uh, Conservative Energy Network, which is a national network of conservatives, yep. to try and make sure that that happens. And, um, you know, uh, we've managed to have a lot of our alum from that Clean Energy Legislator Academy be primary sponsors on bills that have done some really big things in different states around the country. In 2019, it was a, a really big year, but... Uh, we, it was our alum in Oregon and Washington and New Mexico and Colorado um, who and Nevada were all, you know, legislators who passed big things. They were the primary sponsors in each of those states. Those are concentrated in the West, but it's a good way to think about it. Each of those states had big things that happened in 2019. So we do that. We also looked at this. That's by the way, just to pause, I'm going to pause it. That is incredible work. I mean, is a firm that look, you know, we operate in 28 different states right now. It's literally 28 different policy fiefdoms, and you have to understand how to operate in those fiefdoms. But for folks that, you know, I come from a policy background, moved into finance, when you align policy in appropriate ways, the, the market and finance will, will follow because there's efficiency, there's certainty, and it will move. The more there's shifting to that policy and uncertainty, the higher the costs that, that any of this stuff is going to cause because you're going to get more expensive, riskier capital doing it. But the more you can align that policy, and we're just seeing this in Georgia today, right? You've got a Republican governor bringing Q-cell energy solar manufacturing in because the, they see the jobs, they see the manufacturing uh, and the opportunity. He may not be a climate champion, but yeah, right. he sees the opportunity of this new clean energy economy for his constituents. Like That's huge work. That's a, a lot of the conservatives will say, listen, when we're in a conversation about the energy transition, we actually don't talk much about climate. Or right. maybe sometimes we don't talk at all about climate. We talk about the economic benefits, the economic advantage that you gain as a state. Um, so, so we do that, but we also realize in this transition, and, and I have a, um, a woman who is the assistant director here at the center. Her name is Dr. Suzanne Pegan, and she was the one who came to me and said, I'd really like to work in coal-dependent communities on the transition because there's, you know, it, they were going away. And so right. we have an um, energy transition academy for coal-dependent communities in Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico. And we're trying to be part of the conversation going forward. And as you know, there's uh, a variety of different uh, tranches of money uh, in the Infrastructure Act and the Inflation Reduction Act for coal-dependent communities. And we're just trying to help those communities in this transition because a lot of them, That's huge. Uh, it's going away, right, in 2030. And then we do some things like, you know, we are um, working with New Mexico um, on the low carbon fuel standard. We've worked, you know, around the country with uh, what's called a conveners network, where we bring states together and just have a conversation like, what do you need? And oh, by the way, we have folks that we know in the White House, and we can ensure 
that the White House is listening to states about what they need to be part of the transition, and states are listening to the White House kind of about what's coming down. So right now, this Inflation Reduction Act and the Bipartisan Infrastructure and Jobs Act, <clears throat> both of those are really big things. The Inflation Reduction Act is a very significant piece of legislation where clean energy, climate are concerned. And so making sure that states have the capacity to do all that's necessary to, to get that money in the door in the state and then to spend it the right way, that's something that great that a lot of people around this country care about. And we're part of a network of institutions around the country that are trying to help states do that. Yeah, I, I think people realize the marriage of those two bills and the yeah. opportunities creating to recreate our grid, to recreate our transportation system, and the work that a lot of uh, for folks that haven't been in government, you know, oftentimes the 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 local government, which is going to be the ones really implementing out of this, doesn't really they don't have the center of excellence. They don't have the expertise uh, in in the Department of Energy to rely on, right, to bring the, the the expertise forward. And it's the work of the center and other folks that to help educate people and show them the best work being done in other states, for instance, and how to bring that in. Well, if, I. I govern when the ARA funding after the Great Recession, the Obama administration yeah. put in the ARA funding. Um, it's a small amount compared to the Infrastructure Act and the Inflation Reduction Act, but at least I gained some experience about how important it was to think of, of capacity and you know building the capacity to do it. And that's partly what we rely on, but we work with Duke University, the Nicholas Institute in Georgetown and Harvard, a group in the Midwest called the Great Plains Institute and then our center and um, this is, you know, the thesis that you just outlined about why that's so important. That's what these institutions do. We call ourselves the conveners network because if states, again, we're at a place where states are critical in our ability to make this transition. Uh, I, I, yeah. I watched the Rhodium Group. I don't know if you've ever yeah. looked at I worked their, with a lot of those folks in the administration, actually. Uh, that, great, those, great, they great. Great people. But, you know, the Rhodium Group had a report last year that said, 60% of the emissions that we need to cut to make our 2030 goal under the Paris target, 60% are in states without climate goals. And so that's, goals, yeah. so that's why it's important uh, for us, at least, to work with states, to convene as many states as we can, to get Republican administrations and Democratic administrations in the door and get them in the door together and begin to you know, look at that 60% and say, how do we do that even if you don't have a climate goal? What's the kind of thing necessary to build an economy in your state that helps in this transition and you know will parent it will also cut emissions over time. Yeah. So to look at for a second, like the you know, for folks that aren't aware, the infrastructure or the um the um bipartisan bill really almost had a five-year window of cash flow. Like we're we're just in the beginning of the planning. You know, next year's this year is going to be a lot about like taking those plans and figuring out how to get them up. and then the money really starts to flow. But over the next five years, so, that, so having those plans in place over, the, over in, in this window is critical. And then you guys have, which I, I love, is the action ability of a legislative team, right, who's gone through your training that can help tweak the state level rules to make sure these cash is flowing the right way. How, how do you guys sort of see that big picture? You know, at the end of this five years, like how, what do you see changing in our sort of new energy economy? Well, um, a couple of things. It varies a bit from state to state. For sure. And, you know, you'll find states where the governor just wants the control, complete control of everything coming in, and other states where the legislature is very powerful and and they want control, and then states where they kind of share power. Colorado's in the 
third category where it's kind of a shared power. But um, what I what I see happening here, and I mean, you know this because you do so much in the solar business, but this is really where solar and batteries are concerned to have the extension of a tax credit that you know many people thought was going away, very worried about what would happen with solar. Um, that kind of gives it new life. Supply chain is still uh, an issue on the both sure. solar and the battery side, but the tax credit gives it new life. And the tax credit, you know, transitions from the investment tax credit to uh, I think it's called a new energy or clean energy tax credit. And um, it, it, it does not have a deadline. And that's different than how we've managed this before. So it will have to be proactively ended in order for it to, to ever go away. That's a what you said earlier, John. That's the kind of certainty that business people like a lot where tax credits yeah. are concerned. So that's big. And, and I think we'll see that with wind. We'll see it with solar. We were beginning to hear, you know, people being concerned about the tax credits going away. And I think the Inflation Reduction Act did something really important. The second thing that is really important, I mean, it's American made goods. So there's an advantage to that. It's prevailing wages. But John, I've never seen anything in my lifetime that thought about the justice end of right. economic development as much as the Inflation Reduction Act. So you get a 30% credit with one of these credits. But if you are using you know, prevailing wages and American-made goods and doing this in communities that are defined as marginalized communities, it gets up to a 50% tax credit. You can actually do building retrofits in very poor neighborhoods and get a 50% tax credit. And it gives us the ability, those of us you know, who are trying to build this energy transition to really say to poor communities, hey, listen, I know you've been left behind. Yeah, felt left behind in this energy transition that's happening. That won't happen again. That's not going to happen. We have the ability to do something different than we ever have. And then I think <clears throat> we're going to see that kind of transformation in the power sector, the uh, transportation sector, and the building sector. And all of those matter so much uh, to our emissions. Um, and if we, you know, are able to curb emissions, and at the same time. Uh, think about the, this from a justice perspective and do these really important things in poor communities. It truly transforms the energy economy in a way that I think not many people felt was possible. That's wonderful. And, and thank you for the work you're doing at the center to do that and helping and anything, you know, both us at Clean Capital. But if, if there's any asks to folks in the audience, uh, you know, our audience really consists of business leaders, others in the industry, folks in academia, that they could be helpful. Is, do you have any specific? Uh, any asks for them to be helpful for the work that you're doing? Well, I don't have specific asks, but I would re uh, refer people to our advanced energy legislation tracker. We track every piece of legislation introduced wow. at the state level for advanced energy. It's aeltracker.org. And then also um, SPOT, it stands for State Policy Opportunity Tracker that says, what, what do states still need to do? And I think, you know, for the business community, if people go in and look and say, well, the state of, you know, X still has this left to do, really, if it's going to catch up with where other states are. Uh, the business community is a very important voice in this country, and I would love it if they'd use those two different, it's called spotforcleanenergy.org and eltracker.org. If they use those two tools to go to policymakers and say, we could use this in our state, I think it would help the transition in a lot of places. 
Yeah, I mean, one of the things we did in Oregon actually like two years ago is there was a push against some of the positive uh, momentum on some of the climate efforts there. And we I wrote an op-ed about the in impact that would have on outside capital coming into the state. Mm -hmm. And I think using those type of messages, which I think will impact many lawmakers, was really important to get the job done. So, so I want to take you back to Aurora for a second and being on the farm. If you can go down, go back and sit down with yourself. Uh, you know, coming out of high school or coming out of college and have a beer and, and give yourself a, any piece of advice, what would you say? Um, well, it is important to try and look around corners to see around yeah. corners. My life, I've been very, very blessed in so many respects, but partly, and I've been around people that I, I feel like they knew how to look around a corner, they knew how to see around a corner and um, don't trust naysayers you know, just right off the bat. I mean, there, there are people that can warn you against um, doing things that from a policy perspective may be the wrong thing. But, you know, even as the, as the district attorney for 12 years and then as the governor and now in this work that I've done, um, I've had the advantage of being around people who helped me see around corners and say, this is what is coming. And, you know, there are naysayers out there, um, but let's, you know, try it. Let's put safeguards in place. Um, you know, if, if we had done everything the naysayers told us to do, we would not be where we right. are. And I think the country wouldn't be where it is. That's, that's great advice. And uh, thank you so much for the time this morning to be, yeah. be on our, our podcast. I want to thank Hannah Bear from your team for helping to put this together and our producer, Colin Young, for all the work she does for these episodes. You can get, always get more episodes at cleancapital.com and really look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks so much, Governor. Hey, thanks, John. It's a real pleasure. Thank you.